It's 835. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. This is our Friday program. We do not go gently into the good long weekend. Uh, lots of material to cover. And because I kind of accumulate stuff over the week and I try to I get get through all the good stuff, um, we're going to move through topics perhaps more quickly than we do sometimes just because there's so much stuff to get to. Just a quick observation about the Packers game yesterday. Matter of fact, I was talking to Greg Matzik just a couple of minutes ago. If, if you are a, a sports junkie and a football junkie in particular, th- this is going to be an amazing couple days because the NFL – you know, you, you have to, the teams, by Saturday afternoon, have to cut down to their 53-person roster. Um, they have, for the first time this year, been allowed to carry, what, like 90 players for the entire preseason. So there's 32 NFL teams. That means that the, the teams are going to be cutting 30 to 35 players, I guess, over the course of the next 48 hours. So you're going to have over 1,000 players that are suddenly going to be on the market. So just because the Packers announced their 53-person roster on Saturday, I, I would guess if I were at least a handful of those players, there, there's no guarantee that they're going to make the team because I have to believe that there's perhaps, again, for the bottom handful of players, there's maybe some people that are going to get cut that are better than the, the players that the Packers are going to have at the bottom of their roster. My, my current whipping boy is the second-round draft pick from last year, what Jason Spriggs, who the tackle, who can't play, who just flat can't play. I know he's a second-round pick. You put this guy out there, Aaron Rodgers will get killed, just absolutely killed. And um, I, know Ra, I know that uh, Ted Thompson hates to waste picks, but it, it looks like it's a really, really bad pick. Get rid of him. Just just get rid of him. So interesting time if you are a sports junkie over the next 48 hours. All right. We start off today's show like we start off every show. Three big things. Let's see. What's the number one story? Oh, yes. Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark, appointed in 2002 by then-Governor Scott McCallum, resigns yesterday, turns in his letter of resignation. The New York Times and the Washington Post uh, write about saying it is a terse, terse letter of resignation. I don't know. It just says he's he's resigning effective immediately. Um, David Clark, I, I think, and I said this when I was talking to Jane a minute ago, I think he's one of the most interesting and polarizing local figures, certainly in the last 20 to, to 30 years. Uh, the, the Clark legacy, to me, is going to be extremely, extremely mixed. I, I actually think it is a tale of two, two sheriffs. Um, when David Clark first took over, I remember having breakfast with him. Um, there used to be like a little breakfast place right, right down the street from where I'm here. And I remember I, I found him to be just an absolutely fascinating guy. And he talked about how... He really wanted to change the culture at the sheriff's department, and he wanted to change at least some of the attitudes in law enforcement to really try to say, hey, I want to use this position as a way to talk to the community. I also want to use this position as a way to challenge this liberal orthodoxy that's out there when it comes to law enforcement. And I I think the first part, I would say the first 10 years of David Clark's tenure, maybe even the first 12, I think were an incredible success. I understand that he gave some people heartburn. He took on some of the people at the Sheriff's Union, and some of my friends, for example, who work in the Sheriff's Department, did not care for him. 
But in general, he was trying to shake up an organization that needed shaking up. I also think David Clark was out there saying things that needed to be said, even though it would give some people fits, even though the liberal editorial writers at the Journal Sentinel would go nuts. I think he was saying things that everybody knew was true, but that people were afraid to, to say. I mean, Clark, who else, who else but David Clark would have come out and said what we already know, which is this idea that, you know, the, the violence in some cases is so out of control that you can call 911, and you should. But the truth of the matter is that the cops aren't going to often be able to get there in time, and you need to figure out, you know, what is my plan B? How am I going to protect myself? Oh, my gosh, he's encouraging vigilantism. No, he's encouraging common sense. He's encouraging people to, you know, think and be willing to protect themselves, recognizing that there are limits to what law enforcement can do. He was willing to call out one of the only officials, willing to call out, you know, liberal judges who were making ridiculous decisions, turning bad guys back on the street to commit crimes. It has been an ongoing disappointment to me that people like Tom Barrett and Ed Flynn have been unwilling to do that. They, oh, they Mickey Mouse around it. Well, we need more tough, we need tougher gun laws. Um, and, and yes, there's all these repeat criminals that are out on the street. Well, let's start naming names. Let's start talking about the judges that are part of the catch and release thing. David Clark was willing to do that. And he gets a lot of credit in my book for being willing to do that. Now, like I say, in my opinion, there, there's really, there's almost like two David Clarks. If you ever saw the the old movie um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, it was about these, these aliens that came from another planet and they took over people's bodies. And the, the original humans, you would go down into the basement and you'd find these pods. Starting about 2015 or so, I always thought, gee, I wonder if you went into uh, to Sheriff Clark's basement, whether you'd find, find a pod. Has somebody come down and kind of taken over Sheriff Clark? Because I think for the last couple years... Maybe it was the fact that he just got tired of the fights. Maybe it was the fact that he got tired of the ankle biting and the pettiness. Maybe he just got tired of, of the job. And I can understand that. But I think for the last couple of years, he's been largely punched out on this. I wasn't bothered by the fact that he was actively campaigning for, for Donald Trump. Um, I, I think lots of politicians do that. You think that Tom Barrett wouldn't have been a surrogate for Hillary Clinton if she thought Tom Barrett could help him? Well, of course not. Politicians go and do that. I wasn't bothered by his appearances on Fox News or on the, the other aspects of the media. But I do think what happened over the last couple of years is he just got tired. And, and maybe maybe he outgrew the job. Maybe he got bored with the job. But I, I do think he sort of became David Clark, the national figure, talking about national issues, as opposed to, and agree with him or disagree with him, you know, he, he has his own unique take on that, as opposed to the guy that we're paying as a taxpayer of Milwaukee County, we're paying 130000 or whatever he gets to, you know, be the top law enforcement officer for the county. I just thought he grew bored with the job. And as he grew more bored with the job, he became more thin-skinned when it came to criticism and things like that. So I think the legacy of David Clark is very, I would say it is mixed. I acknowledge that he is polarizing. On balance, though, on balance, I think David Clark has been an interesting and a positive force for the community. 
and I certainly wish him well. The speculation is that, at least in the New York Times and the Washington Post, speculation is he's going to take some job with the Trump administration that doesn't require Senate approval. My guess is, if that's the case, it's going to be some policy thing where he can, again, um, talk about and advocate his his various views on reform. But, But in general, I acknowledge that he has been polarizing. I think on balance, I think David Clark is going to be viewed positively. And I will tell you, big picture, I am going to be somewhat sorry to see him go. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What is the legacy of David Clark? Are you sorry to see him go? Um, or is your attitude, don't let the door hit you on the way out? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Overall, I think that David Clark has had a positive effect on the community, particularly the first 10 years. We discuss when we come back. If you're on the line, please hold on. 414-799-1620. That's the Academic Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Stick around. It's 847, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Uh, it's game two for the Brewers and the Nationals out at Miller Park this evening. Mr. Baseball, Bob Euchre, begins our coverage at 635 here on WTMJ. Yeah, credit where credit is due. Brewers, uh, another big win last night. The Cubs refused to lose, so um, that's going to be a little bit problematic. But they're starting to play themselves into the wild card race as well. So you can hear the game tonight. Good big Big win for the Brewers last night. Big story number one, David Clark announces yesterday afternoon that he is resigning. I think on balance, while I think he got tired of the job, and it is probably a little bit past time for him to leave, I think when you look back at the legacy of David Clark and what he did in this community from 2002 until his departure yesterday, on balance, he has been a very, very positive force. If nothing else, he would routinely make the heads of people like Oh, editorial writers at the Journal Sentinel and Chris Abley. He would routinely make their heads explode, and that in and of itself has a value. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Richard in Milwaukee. Richard, you're first. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Okay, what's the legacy of David Clark? Is it going to be? Is he going to be viewed positively? Sure, positive and negative, but positive and negative mm-hmm. is necessary if that's how matter is made. It's positive and negative. It has a common ground. So he's trying to bring us to common ground. Uh, he did make people think, and that's good. But he's also thinking. He reflects on what he does, for sure. And he wants, he knows what he wants. To, he wants for this nation, not just for us. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I th- it's in many respects, I mean, thanks to Clark, I, I think Clark... I think he outgrew the job, and I don't say that in I don't say that in a good way or a bad way. I just think he outgrew the job. I think he got, I think he got worn down by the, I don't know the, the ankle biting was going on and the fighting with the comment with the fighting with the county board and the fighting with uh, you know Chris Abley. And I, I think he he wants he wants a larger platform for his views than than Milwaukee County. I, I think he loved being sheriff for a while. And I mean, I, I just that that's what happens in a lot of those jobs. In many respects, 
when I think back on Sheriff Clark, I'm, I'm actually surprised. The time seems to have flown. It really, it just seems like yesterday. Like I say, I was sitting down having breakfast, breakfast with him at the place down the road. I, I mean, I can't believe that was really 2002. And I guess as I think back on it, I, I'm that the fact that he, you know, was around for 14 or 15 years, given given all the issues and all the pressures that's kind of a surprise uh kathy sends me an email you said what i've been thinking he's done some really great things as sheriff and said things that no one else had the guts to say but then his demeanor changed and the same message in my opinion was communicate the same message in my opinion was communicated in a way that seemed to upset and divide our community instead of bringing it together i agree it is a tale of two clarks hopefully this is first of many necessary changes that come into our city 414-799-1620 henry in Hales Corners. Henry, good morning. Hi, good morning, everyone. And, and Jeff, I, I listen to you all the time, and I think you're an extremely intelligent individual, but you are really wrong on this one for so many levels, and I'll explain what I mean. You said it yourself when you met him at that breakfast after he got elected, how he talked about the liberal narrative and what he was right. hoping to bring to the office. He ran as a Democrat twice. He did that. Three times, didn't he? I think three times, didn't he? I think three times, yeah. Yeah, three times. He ran three times as a Democrat in a, in a predominantly Democrat area yep. to be a phony. He did that to fool voters thinking that he was a Democrat. He did that disingenuously, and to me, it made him a phony, and I never believed him and trusted him from day one. And I'm sorry if he got bored with the job. But he will, his job was to be the sheriff of Milwaukee County, not be the sheriff of Donald Trump. That's what? All well, oh, oh, well, okay. Well, all right. <clears throat> I guess here, here's how I answer that. He, he ran as a Democrat because he made a political calculation, as people do, that if he was running as a Republican, it would be impossible to get elected in Milwaukee County because he, unlike Scott Walker, who Scott Walker ran in April elections, nonpartisan elections, and even though everybody knew Walker was a Republican, it wasn't a Republican or Democrat thing. I mean, I, I, I think you're right. Clark made a political calculation from the beginning that if he ran as a Republican, he wouldn't get elected. I, I don't know that that's necessarily I don't know how cynical that is. That's just the political calculation. To me, I don't know that it's a phony. I don't think David Clark was anything other than David Clark from from the beginning. As a matter of fact, in some respects, as his legend grew, I think getting out of the Democratic primary, especially in the last election, was perhaps more more of a challenge. So I guess I don't see I, I don't see it being a, a phony. Was it a political calculation? Yeah. But you let's face it, you always knew where David Clark stood. And I think one of the interesting things is that especially after time went on, you had people Liberals like Chris Abley, who spent hundreds of thousands of dollars of his own money trying to defeat David Clark, and they couldn't take him out in Democratic primaries, which said something about Clark's crossover appeal. You know, I understand there were a lot of people that were writing him off. They said, okay, if if he wanted to run for another term, and most of us who know the sheriff, former sheriff, I mean, I, I don't think he ever intended to do that. I mean, like I said, I think he was bored. I don't feel sorry for him for being bored or anything like that. That's he did, I think that's just what happened. But if he had decided to run again, I know that there's a lot of people who were writing his political obituary. Well, he'll never win. Well, I'm going to tell you something. There's a lot of people who um, 
I, I think they might have been surprised. Now, is it time for the sheriff to move on? Yes, I, I think that's great. It'll be interesting to see what the next step is. Like I say, there's lots of speculation that he is going to take on a role in the Trump administration in a policy sort of thing as opposed to an administrative sort of thing. This job that they were talking about with Homeland Security, I think I think that would have been a bad fit. Um, because that that's that was really a bureaucratic type of job, and I'm not sure that's what Sheriff Clark's real strengths are. But again, you know, it's polarizing. It was interesting to me. I was watching the long knives come out. You had you know Chris Abley who kind of came out with a smarmy statement. You had uh, State Senator Lena Taylor, who actually Lena Taylor in person is smarter than the character that she plays on on TV. She she is, but she came out with a with a you know kind of smarmy attack statement on David Clark. Gwen Moore, the congressman from Milwaukee, who unlike Senator Taylor, who in my opinion, like I say, is a lot smarter and more thoughtful than the character she plays on TV. Gwen Moore, congressman from Milwaukee, what you see with Gwen Moore is what you get. And and she came out with another sort of attack job on him. But in general, I I think I think people are going to look back on David Clark and especially if you look at the entire body of work, I think it is positive. All right, coming up in two and a half minutes, what happens next? What should Governor Walker do? He's got the appointment power. I will give you my advice, if the governor were to ask me, just a minute. It's 855. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 857, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, a former area fire chief, now heads up a Texas fire department that's been devastated by Harvey. He joins John McCure and shares the surprising way you can help him and his fellow firefighters. That's today at 420 on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Coming up in 10 minutes, you know, we've seen a lot of the best of people. Um, this J.J. Watt thing and everybody who's donated uh, to help out, for example, the, the people who've been victimized by the hurricane in Florida, in Florida, in Texas. Unfortunately, um, at the same time, you see the best of people. You have the cockroaches that come out. And there's already a number of Hurricane Harvey scams that are out there. We're going to talk about that as big thing number two in just a couple minutes. But where do we go from here? Um, the next sheriff in Milwaukee County is going to be elected by the voters um, next next November, um, but it's a partisan it's a partisan race. So in all likelihood, it's going to be decided in a Democratic primary. There are a couple people who are seeking appointments, both of whom would be at least two of the people I know would be good choices. Because the truth of the matter is, if I was Governor Walker right now, I would be trying to find somebody who. You know, is going to be a good, solid appointment, knowing that they're both going to run as Democrats. One is this former police captain, Ernell Lucas, who's now a vice president of security with Major League Baseball. He'd be okay. I'll tell you the better choice, though. It's U.S. Marshal um, Kevin Carr. I have known Kevin Carr for decades. Used to work with him when I was chasing dope peddlers back in the day. He's the former U.S. Marshal. Yes, he was appointed to the U.S. Marshal's office by Barack Obama. Doesn't matter. He's a good guy. He was Clark's number two for a long period of time. He says he wants to run. He would be a great choice. And if Scott Walker were to select him as the sheriff, let me tell you this, the governor could go a lot farther and do a lot worse. Um, Kevin Carr would be an outstanding choice. I think he should be the leader in the clubhouse for that appointment, should he seek it. It's 8.50. It's 9.09. This is Jeff Wagner. Welcome to the Friday show. 
Big story number two, the scammers are out in the wake of Hurricane Harvey. I, I couldn't do this as the leadoff story because my, my blood pressure, even just thinking about it during the break, my blood pressure is going up because I, I just, when, when you have natural disasters, it brings out the best in people. And you've been seeing those stories over and over again out of Houston. You've been seeing the, the people coming in their boats to help rescue people. You've been seeing the folks who volunteered at the different shelters. You've been seeing the, the best. You are seeing it in the incredible generosity, whether it was the you know Radiothon that we did a couple days ago and the money we raised, or this great story out of Pewaukee, you know, the effort spearheaded by J.J. Watt, you know, semi-trucks full of semi-trucks heading down to that area to help people that's that's the best that's the best of humanity and you see it you see this country coming together and then you see the slime you see the pond scum and as i've always said there's two kinds of pond scum there's sort of the 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 crusty brown stuff at the top of the pond and then there's the squishy green stuff at the bottom of the pond. Well, the, 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 the crusty brown stuff you can kind of brush off, but it's that squishy green stuff that's really got that ick factor. Well, the, the people who are coming out to try to exploit this tragedy, they're, they're that squishy green stuff kind of pond scum. Um, if I were a judge in Texas and I had one of these cases of a looter coming in front of me, and in Texas, um, if you decide to engage in certain types of crimes during times of natural disaster. If you were a looter, um, my, my basic philosophy, and this is probably why I'm not a judge in Texas or anywhere else, would be if you get convicted of doing this every damn day. That would be, I, what is the maximum penalty, Mr. Prosecutor? All right, the sentence is every damn day. You mean to tell me that, you know, when the people evacuated their home, you decided it would be a good chance for you to go in and try to take stuff out of their home? Or, gee, um, you decided that you were going to use this as an opportunity to go in and steal video games out of the GameStop store? Fine. Here's your sentence every damn day. That would be my overall philosophy for dealing with this. And... That philosophy extends to not just the looters, but to the scammers that are out there. And it's just very, very disappointing. Um, But there's already reports of various scams. And I wanted to just take one segment to tell you about some of the scams that are out there, because this could affect you. It's not just located to or, uh, uniquely to the Houston area. Now, uniquely to the Houston area, there's already what they call the flood insurance scams. Numerous homeowners and renters throughout Texas and Louisiana are getting robocalls that tell them that their flood insurance premiums are overdue. And they say, all right, to make sure you're covered for any damage from Harvey, you have to immediately pay or risk losing it all. You know, the idea being, hey, your insurance has expired. You haven't paid your premiums. If you want to collect on this, you better send us money. Well, okay, that, that's not how the insurance companies work. You're not going to get this robocall, but it is apparently scaring people who are already at one of the lowest points in their life because they're fighting this flood into paying. And so what they say, of course, is um, call your insurance agent. You know, call the go find your insurance policy. And if there's any question at all, you know, call the numbers on that. Don't respond to the robocalls. All right. Scam number two, the charity scam. 
And this is something that you need to be aware of. Um, all across the country, people are donating millions of dollars to charities, providing relief efforts to victims of Harvey. So what's going on, however, is that there are people, and maybe you're one of them, getting phone calls, text messages, emails, or postings on your social media account that are asking for money for Harvey relief victims. Now, a number of these, these might be legitimate organizations that are helping collect money, like the Red Cross, Catholic Charities, just a couple. Um, What you need to know, though, is that there are a lot of these people that are posing as charities that they aren't. The only charity that they are looking out for is themselves. And before you just respond to an email or a social post, you want to make sure that you know where the money is going. I mean, you want to make sure that it is a legitimate charity because the scammers are out. Then there's the phishing, not the F-I-S-H, but the P-H-I-S-H, phishing scams. Um, This is, it's a con that's been going on for a while. What happens is you will get a message via email or social media with links that will promise to give you a way to help Harvey victims. Here, you want to help Hurricane Harvey relief victims? Click here. All right. Be very, very, very careful um, because instead of taking you to a to a website, for example, where you can legitimately help the victims of Hurricane Harvey, what happens is you click on these links and you go to bogus websites that end up grabbing um, grabbing your computer, perhaps accessing your login information, um, uh, dumping malware onto your computer. Bottom line is just just don't do this. I mean, if you're considering making donations, you know, don't just click on links from emails that you've end up gotten getting. You will you will regret it. And then, of course, they've got what they call the copycat scams. Um, these are similar to what we just talked about. Um, you get a, a solicitation from a charity that has it pretends to be a charity, and the name seems very, very similar to what is a legitimate charity. And you read this and you say, "Oh, that that's a legitimate charity. It's 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 Red Cross." Well, it, it's actually not Red Cross. It's R E D C R O S S E. Okay, spell, but people don't know that. You read it click, you, quick, you click on it, and next thing you know, you're off to the races. I guess the bottom line of all this is, and this is big story number two, you got to beware of these things because the cockroaches are out. They are looking to try to exploit the better angels of your nature. And we all want to, we all want to help. We want to try to give things um, and do whatever we can to assist the, our, you know, our fellow Americans who are in need. And that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But unfortunately, there are those low lives that are out there that are trying to exploit your basic goodness. So big story number two, the scammers are out in full force. Watch out. Be careful. If you're making a donation, God bless you, but if you're making a donation, make sure that you're doing it so that the money gets where you intend it to go and so you don't expose yourself uh, again to uh, the the malware or all the, the scams that are out there. So a word to the wise. All right, coming up, big story number three, the federal government is thinking about going after your 401k plan. I will explain it. It is an incredibly, incredibly bad idea. Stick around. It's 917. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 
WTMJ, one area lawmaker, says a delay in the work on I-94 could be detrimental to your family. What is he alluding to here? Waukesha County Executive Paul Farrow joins John McCure and Wisconsin's Afternoon News at 3.20. One final thought on the Hurricane Harvey thing and, and why why so many people hate the mainstream media. Earlier this week, President Trump made a, a visit to to Texas. And we, we talked about this, I think it was yesterday, maybe it was two days ago. And the, the whole notion, it, it was, again, the Trump visit gets panned. And I understand that there's things that President Trump does that irritates people. But at the same time, the, the, the tone of the coverage is just so relentlessly negative. And it was one story after another. Trump goes to Texas. He doesn't meet with the people who are actually affected. He doesn't go to any of the like survivors, the, the rescue centers or anything like that. He went to Corpus Christi. He had sort of an impromptu little rally on the courthouse. Then he goes up to Austin and he meets with the emergency. They do a flyover over Houston. Then they, they go up to Austin and he meets with the governor and the emergency management people and things like that. And of course, you're getting all the criticism well, he didn't go to the rescue centers. Oh, this is so terrible. Look at the shoes that his wife wore as she was walking out to the helicopter before they were going to fly down to Texas. Oh, isn't this appalling? I, and I, I said at the time, we talked about that, that I just thought that was so just incredibly unfair and a cheap shot to the point that there was nothing he could have done which would have satisfied anybody. There's been an interesting follow-up to that because... Uh, the Trump administration kind of pushed back a little on that story. Why didn't you go to any of the rescue centers in Houston? And, and what, what happened was they said, look, the emergency rescue people, you know, this was an active you know, search and rescue thing. I mean, this was you know, two days ago. You, you got people, there's boats out there trying to find people who haven't been, you know, who've been stuck in their homes for four or five days. And what the emergency people apparently said to the president is, don't come into Houston proper. Don't come to any of these shelters or stuff because what's going to happen is we're going to, if you come and you come into, for example, Houston proper, we're going to have to divert. We've only got a limited number of of police, firefighters, etc., and they've all got their hands full. You know, to provide security and all for a presidential visit, we're going to have to pull people away from search and rescue and that type of stuff to provide security for the president. So they said, please, just don't do that now. And so President Trump doesn't. You know, and, and of course, then he gets criticized. Well, you were insensitive. You didn't go to this. Well, the truth of the matter is, if he had gone this, if he had gone to, you know, visit one of the, the shelters where, where people were, you know, the story the next day would have been, all right, Fire and police people pulled away from search and rescue to go provide security for Trump. It really, it's sort of this like no-win kind of situation that he's in. He did apparently what the emergency management people said, and if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. All right, why why create this disruption? You know, make sure everything is going according to plan, and then kind of get out of the way of the people who are on the streets actually doing this stuff. But, of course, for the mainstream media, that wasn't enough. All right, big story number three. For many, many people, the number one asset you have in your life is your house. Um, But number two might be your 401K plan. At work, I mean, the four, I think everybody probably knows how the 401k plans work. 401k plans allow you to take money that you are currently paid from your employer and put it in an investment vehicle, a 401k plan, 
where it then grows. And this is, as more and more people lose pensions, for example, I mean, 401ks become the vehicle that lots of people use to save for retirement. In an effort to encourage people to save for retirement, you have the traditional 401k plan gives you a tax-deferred savings. In other words, when you have money taken out of your paycheck and put in your 401k plan, that money is not taxed. You don't pay tax when it is taken out. So if today's your payday and you've got $200 going into your 401k account, that $200, it's not taxed. I mean, you get the whole $200, and it grows over time. When you retire and you take it out, you pay taxes on it then. But the initial contribution is not – it's it's tax-deferred, all right? Um, there is – they're talking in Washington about budget reform. And one of the things that everybody, starting with Paul Ryan on down, says is if we're going to have budget reform, tax reform, it's got to be – budget neutral. In other words, we if we're going to give people tax breaks here, we've got to pay for it somehow. One of the ideas, and there's a big story about this in Politico and the Washington Post and the Hill, it, one of the things that at least some Republicans are thinking about doing is eliminating the tax-deferred 401k contribution. You could still have 401ks, but you would pay taxes on the money going into your 401k plan up front. And then that money would grow tax-deferred. So it would be like what they call the raw thing. 414-799-1620. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think this is an incredibly bad idea. And any Republicans thinking about it should immediately, at least in my opinion, change their position. If you take away, we have a huge problem already in this country trying to get people to save for retirement. In my opinion, if you take away the incentive, that tax-deferred incentive, and start taxing people's contributions up front, even if you then get it to grow tax-free, you're going to see a lot of people who just simply make the decision to stop contributing, and that's going to lead to a crisis down the road. 414-799-1620. Again, they've got Roth. Some companies offer what's called Roth 401Ks, and that's fine if you choose to do it. But for the average person, I think if you take away that upfront tax deduction, that tax deferral, it's going to devastate retirement savings. 414-799-1620. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 927. It's, eight, it's 929. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Let's talk to Tim in Milwaukee. Tim, good morning. Good morning. I guess I have some questions on how you look at the plan if we're talking about it being like a, a Roth-featured 401k. Those are tax-free when we're withdrawing in retirement yes. and not just tax-deferred. Right. You pay the tax up front, and then you don't pay taxes again. Yes, that's what the Roth is. This would essentially, the way I understand it, this would turn everything into Roths. You would no longer have the option of getting the tax deferral to make the initial contribution. So while I agree that's not attractive in the here and now, a lot of today's retirement planners would actually provide that that's not a bad feature for that. I I, I think the biggest challenge... 
that they have is the fact that it's not going to be attractive enough to the people who are already not saving. And that's what you said earlier. This is not going to be an attractive piece to get people to save for retirement, and that's going to be our problem. I don't know that the Roth future is bad, but I oh, do no, think no, that's no, no. the problem to give people to uh, yeah. plan for savings. Oh, no, Tim, don't get me wrong. I, I'm not criticizing Roth IRAs or Roth 401ks. I mean, but but it everybody's financial situation is, is different, and I think what you have – is we, we have enough trouble getting people to invest in the first place um, to try to plan and save for their own retirements. If you take away that tax-deferred feature, for a lot of people up front, they're going to say, well, why should I contribute $2,000 or whatever it is to my account if I get no break? Yeah, you can explain to them, hey, this is going to be great for you 25 years down the road, but they're, they're just not going to make that commitment. I have nothing against Roth IRAs. I think they're great, but at the same time, we're, we're, we, we gotta get people to save. You take away this tax deferred feature, and I think you're gonna just have, the bottom is gonna fall out of this, and we're gonna have more and more people who aren't gonna be prepared for retirement. We continue the conversation after the break. It's 9.35, this is Jeff Wagner, 6.20 WTMJ. All right, if you're just tuning in, we're talking about, our, this is big story number three. Republicans are trying to talk about tax reform, and they're trying to figure out ways to generate money to pay for certain tax cuts they want to give. That means you got to pay more somewhere else. One of the things they are looking at, which would give them hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, is to eliminate the tax deferral that now exists on 401k plans. 401k plans, if you want to save for your retirement, the maximum I think is $18,000 and you can put in an extra six grand if you're over 50, a catch-up contribution. That money that you invest today in your 401k plan can go in, it goes in tax deferred. So if you make $100,000, that Let's say you put in $24,000, the 18 plus the 6 catch-up. That, that $24,000, you are not taxed on that right away. So it gives you an incentive to do it. Um, and then when you withdraw the money later on, you end up having to pay the taxes on the money you withdraw it. Um, the plan that some Republicans are floating would eliminate that upfront tax break. You could still have 401Ks. But just like the way Roth 401ks operate, you pay taxes up front, and then when you take the money out 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now, then you end up, um, you don't have to pay taxes ever again. But you don't get that upfront deduction. If you take away, in my opinion, that upfront deduction, you are going to discourage millions of Americans who desperately need to save for their retirements, you're going to discourage them from doing exactly that. I have nothing against the, the Roth 401ks or the Roth IRAs. If you don't mind paying the taxes up front, that, that's fine. Do it. Then the money grows tax-free. That, that's, a, that's a great deal. But, but the point is, for a lot of people who are trying to, who can't understand or can't see retirement to begin with and don't see the benefits or can't figure out why or how they should be saving a little money, you take away that tax deferral advantage up front, they're just going to stop contributing. And then they're going to be an even worse mess than they already are when they hit retirement. 414-799-1620 is the number. Let's talk to Mark in Fond du Lac. Mark, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Well, I, I agree with you. I've got a 401k, and I've got, I've got the Roth also. Sorry about the noise in the no, background. No problem. Uh, but I think the people, the young people that are going to lose out, they're going to lose that 20 or $30 a paycheck. Yep. 
And that 20 or $30 is what's paying for the diapers or the baby food or right. the day-to-day uh, items. Right, and it's what encourages them to maybe even save a little bit. You take that away, they're going to say, well, okay, well, why do I there, – there's no incentive for me to invest, so they won't invest. That's my concern. Well, exactly, exactly. And I've seen the uh, – I remember when paychecks, and I'll use the health insurance as an example, where for whatever reason, a fifth paycheck or a third paycheck in a, in a – in a, right. In a month, right? So there's no pay, there's no uh, deductible for insurance. But somebody says, "Well, why didn't my pay go up a hundred dollars?" Well, because now you're paying taxes yeah. on that hundred dollars. So now your paycheck's only going to go down up uh, seventy dollars. Yep. So yeah. You really see that effect, and I think that's where it's important. Well, right. You you we thank see thanks for see we want to in I. I we look. Pensions have gone away for lots and lots of people. You you want. We have to figure out ways to encourage people to save more. One of the things that encourages people to save more is that upfront tax deferral. Now, like I say, for for you know, if if that doesn't matter, if you don't mind paying the taxes now, there's all sorts of advantages to going with the Roth to just paying the taxes up front and then not having to worry about it. I understand that, and I'm not arguing against it. But I'm saying if the government takes away this upfront tax deferral choice in an effort to try to suddenly generate hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever in upfront income, what they're going to find happening is I just think a lot of people are simply not going to choose to participate, and I think that's bad policy. Let's talk to, uh, let's see, Brian in Delafield. Brian, you're in 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my thing with this is, so right now, you know, when when you're at a younger age, you know, theoretically, you're making less money than you will make as you, you know, get towards retirement and then theoretically you'll go up in tax brackets right so there isn't a whole lot of incentive for me to want to pay the taxes at that later higher rate as opposed to paying it now you know at, no, at I, that I lower you, rate. no i think you've actually got it opposite brian because keep in mind you're not going to be able to you're not going to be able to start withdrawing money until you you're retired. That that this is this is a retirement. Well, I mean, I guess theoretically you could, but I mean, the plan is this is supposed to be your retirement money. So, I mean, the the yep. the the, 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 just, the argument would be that you invest it now and then you withdraw it when you're in retirement, when you're no longer working, and when presumably your your tax bracket is a lot lower because you're, you're not working and you don't have the income coming in. Now, I, I understand what you're saying is maybe, you know, if somebody's like 23 years old and they're making a lot less. But no, thank, but, I mean, thank, but actually, I think what you're talking about is actually the opposite of the way they tell a lot of people it's going to work. The idea is when you're in retirement, you are probably going to be, for most people, in a lower tax bracket than you are when you're working. Because again, you, you don't have that income coming in now. I guess I'd have to think it through. At at what point in time do you kind of cross that threshold? But um, th- that's sort of what the thinking of this is. And again, I'm not. Some people are. I'm getting these texts. I'm, I'm not arguing about the value of a Roth IRA or a Roth 401k. I, I there, there's a lot of value to that. I'm just talking about practical human nature. We have a lot of trouble trying to encourage people to save for retirement as it is. You take away the upfront tax deferral aspect of this, and people aren't going to contribute. That's 
That's what my concern is. And then, I mean, we're all, I mean, who knows? Look, Social Security, I am comfortable, is going to be there when, when I end up retiring. I mean, I'm I'm comfortable with with that. But I don't know. If somebody's 25 or 30 or if somebody's 20, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I think it probably will be there. I don't think politicians are going to let it fail. But, but who knows? I will tell you, if I was 25 or 30, I'm not sure that Social Security would be as po- much a part of my retirement strategy as it, it perhaps is when I'm closer to retirement. Because I, I know it's going to be there for me. For, you know, my fiance's grandkids, I don't know. I, I just don't know. In, in any event, uh, I just I think this would be bad policy. I think it is best to leave this as it is, giving people the choice if their companies offer both the regular 401K and the Roth 401K. Give them their choice. But if the government suddenly takes this away to try to get money in the short term, I think it's going to be extremely short Cited. 943, this is Jeff Wagner. When we come back, is it ever, ever appropriate, regardless of who you are, to use the N-word? Got an interesting story to share with you. Stick around. It's 943. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So BD, the big dog, who's producing the show today. You are working with somebody who is either a really good sport or a complete idiot, and I cannot decide which one. So during during the break, the, the director of all our, our digital stuff comes in, and he's got a cheese head in his hand. You know, one of those, those, those big those cheese heads. And he says, I was just doing a podcast with Wayne Larravee, and he made a reference to on-air personnel wearing cheese heads. And he said, and this is the digital director, I'd like to film like 30 seconds of video of you wearing a cheese head. Now, I, I didn't ask him for what. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't say why. I didn't say what is this going to be used for. But instead, I just took the cheese head, put it on my head, and then we just talked for like 20 or 30. I have no idea where this thing is going to end up a- at all. It, and, and actually, the cheese head didn't even fit. So, I mean, I, I just, I, I'm sure it's going to look incredibly, incredibly silly, and it will probably come back to haunt me at some point in time. But I just didn't even think about that. I thought, all right, well, what, what the, here, wear the cheese head and let me put you on a video. Okay, fine. Here, I am a duck. Come pluck me. Go ahead. You know, it's just all right. So that that will be floating around somewhere. By the way, that reminds me, this is uh, my first week on the Twitter. Actually, I am part of the Twitterverse. I know it's called Twitter, not the Twitter. Um, you can follow me at Jeff Wagner six twenty. Um, what we I try to do is, depending on how my day is going, I try to uh, give you some updates on things we're going to talk about on the program. Always an advanced start on what the three big things are, and then some other stuff as well. It's actually kind of fun. Um, so. Um, you can follow me again. It's at Jeff Wagner 620 if you are part of the Twitter verse. All right. There was an interesting right, this morning. I get the newspaper. I get a number of local newspapers. I get a number of papers delivered. I, I pull out the local newspaper, and the first thing I go to is the, the funnies. I, I just, that's just the way. And as I'm getting to the funnies, I, I look on the back, and there is a review of a rap show. 
that was held on on Wednesday night, and it's got it's it was at the it was at the rave, and it, it's written by the Journal Sentinel's you know music critic or whatever, and it caught my attention. I've actually been thinking about it since I saw it. I mean, here's the headline: Review: Clueless white kids sing the N word at Little Yachty show. Lil, L-I, like little, I guess, L-I-L, Yachty, Y-A-C-H-T-Y. Okay, now I need some help here. Um, BD, you are younger than me. Do you have any idea who the rapper Lil Yachty is? Heard the name, never heard his music. Okay, well, you're one step up on me. I have no clue who this, this guy is. Um, all right, but he- here's the review. It's disturbing and appalling that this has to be said in 2017, but... White kids don't say the N-word ever. It happened at Little Yachty's show at the Rave Wednesday night when a loud chorus of voices in the primarily Caucasian crowd sang along to the rappers Wanna Be Us flying through those N-words with glee. Not everyone sang along, but even one white person would have been too many. Yes, Yachty, who has been dubbed the king of the teens, has a young audience. This is the reviewer. But any white kid who sang that word at the show should have known better. How could they not, especially just a few weeks removed from the horrifying display in Charlottesville? Racism doesn't only exist at white supremacist rallies. It persists through ignorance. It persists when white kids, seemingly oblivious or indifferent to the connotation of such a harmful word, feel comfortable enough to belt it out at a hip-hop show. Mindless fun doesn't entitle anyone to be so insensitive. Okay, and, and then it goes on. Now, let me just say this. I don't disagree with the premise that, you know, a bunch of white kids using that word is kind of clueless and offensive. But, 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 if it's wrong for white kids to say it at a concert or sing it at a concert, isn't it wrong for black kids to sing it at the concert? Isn't it wrong for the rappers to use that word every third word. I agree it is offensive. I agree it should not be used in polite society or in society in general. But at the same time, if you are going to have, if you're going to have, for example, these musicians, the rappers or whatever, and they're going to put out songs where every third word is the N-word, are you going to be surprised that the white kids are then using it? And wouldn't we be better? I mean, look, I don't have any issue with the basic premise that the white kids shouldn't have been saying it. But what about the black kids? I mean, if if we want to get this word out of society, something that I'm all in favor of, you know, doesn't that mean that we just have to reach a general consensus that it doesn't matter whether you're white or black or brown or gray or green, this word is unacceptable? Because if you're trying to draw the distinction, well, it's okay for some people to say it, but it's not okay for other people to say it. So, all right, this is the guy's song. So you've got, all right, you've got the white kids. They can't sing along, but the black kids can sing along? Seriously, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. I mean, I, I just, 
Clueless white kids sing the N-word at Lil Yachty show. Well, okay, what about the clueless black kids? And what about the clueless rappers and hip-hop artists who use this word on a regular basis? I mean, aren't, aren't, aren't everybody to blame for doing this? Or does it make a distinction? Can you can you say this? Is it not a harmful word if you have if you're African American? Do you, can can you just go? Can you say this with impunity? But then you should be should, be, should you be surprised if at the concert, well, okay, people are singing along to the song four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. We discuss this next. If you're on the line, hold on. It's nine fifty four. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 9.57, Jeff Wagner, 6.20 WTMJ. There's a story in the local paper where the, the local music reviewer goes to this hip-hop concert, um, largely white crowd. The hip-hop artist who is black has a song where, like, every third word is the N-word, and the reviewer is appalled that all the white kids in the audience are singing along to it. Well, okay, I, I, I understand that that might be, and I understand that that might be a little off-putting, but, but what is the problem? Is it okay for the black kids and the artists to be saying that? Maybe shouldn't we be trying to get that word out of society? Dave and Racine. Dave, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Morning. Um, I spoke to your screener, and I explained to him I'm a former high school football coach, and we had a meeting with our activities directors, and we talked about the things you can and cannot say, things you can and cannot do, obviously. Yet, second day on the practice field, I hear two black kids arguing. And, and using that word, yeah. Yeah, the, the yeah. word comes up. And I looked at him, and I said, the most disrespectful thing you can do is to say that to one another. But yet you guys use it regularly. Yeah. Yet if I were to have said it, you're done. You know, you're yeah. you know, you're you're done as a coach, you're classified as a racist and I you know, I, I just really think we need to educate our society of our kids to understand what's acceptable. Right, and, and that no and thanks for, and that, that that isn't. I mean so I mean again I, I'm just I, I'm thinking about this. Okay, if you've got a, a black, you know, hip hop artist, and and that's that's the song. Yes, I mean, I, is it a little bit jarring that maybe you've got white kids in the audience that are singing along? But is is it not jarring that you? Isn't it just equally as jarring that you would have the black kids in the audience that are singing along to that as well? I mean, what's? I mean, seriously, what what's going on here? And and can you have? Look, that's a horrible word. It doesn't belong anywhere in our society. But that's isn't that just? It's not just for you know the white kids. It's for the black kids as well. You would at least think, if you want to eliminate that from our society, maybe we should be condemning oh the rap artist who decides to put that in his song in the first place. Just saying, it's nine fifty Jeff Wagner, glad to have you with us. Just a couple where our text line exploded with that last conversation. Like I said, I'm sorry, we had lots of calls, but it's Friday, and I try to go through as many topics as I can. But that it, it does it did strike me as a sort of a clueless article in the Journal Sentinel today. Again, if you're just tuning in, you get this article, and it's their local concert reviewer who goes to 
this this hip hop show at the rave featuring some I think some teenage rapper who is black African American who comes out and apparently he's got this song and every third word it sounds like is like the N word and so the guy's in the audience and he's appalled that you have white kids in the audience who are singing along with it and saying the word which I, I mean I. I understand. It's an unacceptable, it is an offensive word. It doesn't belong in society. But at the same time, you've got apparently he's not appalled that you have black kids in the audience who are singing the song, and he's not afraid that the rapper, he's not appalled that the rapper is using this word in the first place. Uh, I, I mean, it, at some point in time, if you're going to try to get it out of society and it's going to be unacceptable, shouldn't it be unacceptable across the board? Our text line, let's see. I totally agree with you 100%. Oh, I'm black. The word, oh, and I'm black. The word is unacceptable. Yeah, it, it, it is. Um, uh, it, it is. Uh, and that's, I mean, it's the ultimate. I guess to me it's just the the hypocrisy of of this that it's okay for some people to say it and it's not okay for others. I'm sorry, it's just the word that doesn't belong in society. And if you're going to have this quote-unquote artist and the rapper who's going to use it, well, should we be surprised that the white kids in the audience are singing along to the song? Um, Totally agree with you, Jeff. Black, brown, or white children, nevertheless, children and adults should never say that word. Um, Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, no question about it. Uh, let's see. Uh, if you're part of the rap culture, there are no restraints for anyone. Um, this is just more of the media trying to selectively be our social conscience. I don't know. I mean, I, I actually, I think if you've got to get this word out of society, you got to get the word out of society, period. All right, let us switch gears. The local newspaper has been very interesting about the whole Foxconn deal. Everybody knows about Foxconn now. It is the giant uh, Asian company that um, is going to be presumably locating somewhere in either Kenosha or Racine County, um, building the huge plant that will create, uh, best-case scenario, maybe 13,000 immediate jobs, plus all the spillover effect Um there's going to be large subsidies that are paid out to Foxconn. And interestingly, the local newspaper that has been a cheerleader for any of almost all other projects that involve the outpouring of taxpayer dollars in this fashion, in my opinion, because it's Scott Walker, because it's a Walker plan, they are noticeably cool. Now, they haven't had the, in the editorial pages, they haven't had the guts to come out and say, we think it's a bad deal. But they, they write all these kind of namby-pamby things saying, well, there's this person that says it's bad, and there's that person that says it's bad. And, and, and you can, again, if this were Jim Doyle, I would suspect they would be enthusiastically supporting it. I think it's a good deal. But there is an interesting, okay, piece that is suggesting. Uh, here, here's, again, one of the editorial writers. This is the headline. Another Foxconn skeptic. Again, this is, the way this is written, this is what the editorial writer thinks, but he doesn't have the guts to come out and say it. So let's find somebody else to say this, and, and then we'll kind, of, uh, we'll, we'll kind of like pass it on. There is a huge issue and a question about whether or not when you build a sports arena, whether there is really any economic benefit to to the area. You know, you, you hear all this talk about, like, economic development. If we build the Bucks Arena, if we build Miller Park, et cetera, you know, will there really be the spillover? Will there really be economic development? And the, the answer is a lot of times there, there isn't. A lot of times, you know, the public contributions towards the, the new arenas, 
it, it doesn't necessarily make economic sense. There might be other reasons for it. Now, I don't know about the Bucks Arena. I mean, I'm hope to me, if we look back five or ten years from now and we try to decide whether this was successful, the question is going to be not whether the Bucks are really still here, but the question is going to be what has happened around the arena. Has this helped revitalize you know, downtown Milwaukee? When it comes to Miller Park, I know one of the things that still sticks in the craw of a lot of people, particularly if you live in Racine, is this idea that if you lived in Racine, you were included in the five-county tax package, and people in Racine say there's no benefit to me from Miller Park. Why, why should I have to pay? I don't get a benefit. I don't get any more benefit. If you live in Milwaukee County, yes, maybe you get a benefit. Maybe if you live in Waukesha County, yes, but you get no benefit if you live in Racine. That's at least the argument. And why should Racine, this is what people would say, why should Racine people have been included? Why not people in Dane County? Why not people in La Crosse? Why not people in Brown County? Um, That is an issue. Anyhow, here's the story about Foxconn. And without burying the lead, it involves the question of whether Foxconn if it's good, let's let's assume it works. Okay, let's assume for the sake of argument that they follow through on their promises and they spend seven or eight or nine or ten billion dollars, be as in billion, building the facility, and that they hire people. The question is, is that going to be good for the state of Wisconsin or just good for the people in Racine and Kenosha? And in the immediate area. I mean, here's the story. Governor Walker's head-turning $3 billion deal with Foxconn continues to attract its share of skeptics. That's, again, the Journal Sentinel trying to needle them, but without having the guts to come out and say, we don't like it. Including a new commentary posted on some website on Monday. John C. Brown, a professor at Clark University, argues that the deal, which the entire state would pay for, would benefit only one region of Wisconsin. The Foxconn project comes at a high cost with uncertain economic benefits, but clear political payoffs. The political economy of Foxconn suggests um, who the winners will be. The governor of the state, and again, the Journal Sentinel doesn't like the governor, the governor of the state, for whom the proposal is the cornerstone of his efforts to reelect himself, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, um, the owners of the land for the site. But then, this is the point, for the most of the rest of the state's 2.8 million employed residents, and this guy doesn't like Walker, and he's a lefty, for most of the rest of the state's 2.8 million employed residents, the Foxconn deal likely misses the target. Near term, it guarantees all residents of the state will pay millions in net costs in higher taxes or reduced services. Um, And it goes on to suggest that for people outside the immediate area, there is no benefit to this deal. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, l- let's tee this up. All right, if Foxconn comes, and again, let's assume that this works like expected. 13,000 jobs, $7 billion in immediate investment, and then all the spin-off stuff. I mean, the other companies that are going to locate here. Is that just going to be good for Racine or Kenosha? Or will that benefit the entire state? The Walker haters are out there saying, "No, no, this this isn't this isn't going to help. Even if it works, it's only going to help a small portion of people who live in the area immediately around where that plant is going to be." Right? If Foxconn works, 
Is it just going to be good for Racine and Kenosha and southern Milwaukee County and maybe parts of Walworth County? Or will this be good for the state in general? I have some very strong feelings on this, but I'm curious about what you think. 414-799-1620. Is this going to be like the Bucks Arena that, best case scenario, probably only is going to have a limited impact, and that would be for downtown Milwaukee? Or is this is Foxconn something that could benefit the state? Journal Sentinel editorial writer and some liberal economists say, nope, 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 not going to help the state. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. It's 1017. It's 1020, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Look, in my opinion, you can argue about whether the the proposed payout to get Foxconn here is, is corporate welfare and is it good public policy. Okay, I think, though, it is stupid. I'm sorry, I can't think of another word. It is stupid to argue that if Foxconn comes and it works, that this doesn't benefit the entire state. 13,000 Foxconn jobs, thousands of other jobs. Um, the, the, it seems to me that the effect on the state of having a major facility located in the state, really the, the possibilities are, are limitless. This isn't like a downtown basketball arena where, best case scenario, you're going to have some a little bit of spinoff, you know, maybe an entertainment district or, you know, some residential housing will develop around the arena. This is a business that's going to employ, again, if it works, 13,000 people. This has benefits to me that go well beyond wherever the plant is located. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Scott in Oconomowoc. Scott, good morning. Hey Jeff, thanks for taking my call. Sure. I, uh, there's so many things, so many benefits that Foxconn will have on the whole state of Wisconsin. I just think of just from one of the many states that has a uh, income tax. If you think about our income tax being seven percent, well, seven percent from someone making ten dollars an hour is going to be much different than seven percent of someone making twenty dollars an hour. That's just one. I think that uh, you know there's going to be a little bit more. Um, opportunity for people coming out of college yep. than there has been, as they often talk about this depletion of, of yep. minds that are leaving the state in you know numbers. I think about the you know maybe even Northern Illinois will benefit, and you know because Foxconn's only going to try to get the best sure. uh, of the employees. Sure. Think, think of the effect on UW, there. right? I mean, to just your point. Think of the effect this is going to have on. They're already talking about it on, on UW and on the various technical colleges that now they want to train people to like fill some of these different jobs that are there. This this is going to have the, this ripple effect. It's not like, gee, um, Foxconn is going to be an island in of, in and of itself in Racine or Kenosha counties. No. No, thanks no, for calling. I mean, I, I, I just thanks. For, I mean, it's just I, I think this is just a a dumb position. Now you read it, and it's clearly this liberal economist who doesn't like Walker. Oh, the only this is only reason Walker is doing this is for political benefit. Well, there is some political benefit. I'm not naive about that. But this idea that having a major employer locate a major plant in your state only benefits the county or the, the surrounding counties where it is, it is just absurd. I mean, what about the people who are going to the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire looking for jobs? Well, okay, maybe this is something that ends up keeping them, you know, in the state. 414 I mean, w- would you argue 
that um, in the in the heyday of the American automobile industry, where you had all the thriving plants that were in, for example, Detroit, that that just benefited Detroit and that didn't benefit the rest of Michigan. Well, who would make that argument? Let's talk to Jeremy and Racine. Jeremy, you're in 620 WTMJ. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Hi, Jeremy. I think this column is completely off the mark here. You maybe need to go check out his degree. When you look at the initial impact of the 3,000 jobs, yes, that's going to have a, a direct impact within that, that region of sure. the state, which, which is mostly needed badly in Racine especially. But when you're looking at the entire process from start to finish, small components, uh, manufacturing, distribution, warehousing, that is going to have a rippling effect throughout the entire Wisconsin economy. They're going to have to have networks up in northern Wisconsin for the Twin Cities, and the list goes on and on and on. So it's not going to be just a, a, a reasonable, regional uh, impact. Yeah. It's going to have an impact not only Wisconsin, Illinois. It's going to have an impact in Minnesota, Michigan, Indiana, yeah. Iowa. Every state within you know that regional area is going to be impacted one way or another by Foxconn coming to our state. It, it, yeah. Well, it, it's, it's like it's like arguing. Okay, UW Madison is based in Madison, so it only benefits Dane County. That's stupid. I mean, you know, exactly. I mean, it, 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 there is a ripple effect from something like this that has the potential to. And again, I'm assuming for the sake of argument, it works. Now, obviously, if if they don't you know, end up investing $10 billion and they don't hire people, that's a different story. But this guy's premise is even if it works as intended, it's still only going to benefit Racine. That's crazy. That's just yeah, crazy. That crazy. No, thanks. Yeah, that right. I mean, exactly. And it's just, it's kind of this frustrating thing. It's Again, it's the Walker derangement syndrome. And you, you've got the, some of the, the national lefties who hate it. And, of course, it's being embraced by some of the local people who aren't willing to actually come out and say it because they're afraid it's going to work. And they don't want to have to eat their words later on so it's kind of this like backhanded sort of thing but uh i i'll say this for anybody who supported for example a downtown bucks arena um on the argument that that this is going to have this huge economic benefit well you, you can't argue that and then turn around and say well foxconn's only going to have an impact in the racine area give me a break um valerie in milwaukee valerie you're on 620 wtmj good morning Good morning. I was just calling to comment on the uh, Foxconn. I think it's extremely self-cited or short-sighted. Or short-sighted. Yeah. <laughs> short-sighted. Thank you. Uh, to say it will only benefit Racine. I mean, this uh, to follow up on what the earlier caller said, it will have a ripple effect, but not in just the ways that he spoke of. I mean, hotels are going to need to go up. Long stay right. type of residence hotels are going to need to go up around that area. Restaurants. Um, new housing, for sure. Um, there'll be an opportunity for uh, residents in that area to retrain um, for higher. Oh, okay, Valerie, I'll let you finish. But let, let me let me argue the other side. The, the 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 economists and the columnists might say, "You're you're fine, Valerie. I'm giving you all that. I'm giving you the explosion and the growth in southeastern Wisconsin." Why does that benefit somebody in La Crosse or Eau Claire or Superior? Why should they care about, you know, this boom coming to southeastern Wisconsin? Well, think about it. Obviously, um, networking, new, um, you know, I don't know what it is now, fiber or whatever, all of those networks are going to need to be developed in order to support a company company. that size. Yep. Therefore, the entire state, I believe, would benefit because that infrastructure would be new. Right. And therefore, you know, we would have 
new networks and new um, utilities that would benefit the entire state. Also, I think it will help tourism Mm -hmm. um, because obviously the traffic in and out of Milwaukee and surrounding airports um, will increase, and therefore it will give the state more visibility and also improve or give us the tax money to improve our airports and our roads and our bridges. I I couldn't have said it better. Plus job opportunities. Okay, you've got... You know, your, your college kid in lacrosse is trying to decide, okay, what do I want to do? I'm kind of interested in this industry. Oh, we have one of the largest plants. You know, we have the only plant in the country that is doing this particular thing, uh, the only facility operating in the state. I mean, you, d- you don't think it's going to be attractive to kids in lacrosse or Eau Claire or Absolutely. to to adults who are looking for jobs, I mean, who want to stay in the state. No, thanks. I mean, it's just it is this frustration that, that's out there. And, and part of the thing is I, I firmly believe that if Mary Burke were the governor and had done this, or Jim Doyle had the governor and done this, a lot of the people that are cast in shade, throwing shade on this, they would be turning handstands. But because it's Walker, well, okay, we don't know that we're going to benefit. Like I say, I think reasonable people can disagree about whether or not the the money being invested to bring them here is too large. I don't have a problem with it, but I at least understand that. But to suggest that there's not a benefit for the state is stupid with a capital S. It's 1028. It's 1036, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. As so many Texans try to put their lives back together, Wisconsinites have again responded in a resounding way. Our Steve Scafidi reflects on the remarkable generosity of you, the listeners to this station and so many in the state, check out his recent blog. It's up now on the Scafidi and Billstead show page at WTMJ.com. Quick reminder, this is I'm back on Twitter. We had a Twitter account years ago, and then it kind of we stopped using it. But uh, you can follow me um, at Jeff Wagner 620. And it's actually um, it's been very, very interesting. I'm going to continue to keep it up and kind of keep you updated on the stuff that I want to talk about on the program. There is an interesting story that is out there, and I don't, I don't know that it is accurate, but if it is accurate, it's just another one of these stories which makes you understand how screwed up the system is. Everybody knows James Comey. James Comey, the former FBI director who famously had the very, very public falling out with Donald Trump. And James Comey, who um, actually a month before or two months before the falling out, you had everybody on the left that thought that James Comey was the devil incarnate. He was the guy that cost Hillary Clinton the election because of some of the things he he did and said. Well, then all of a sudden, James Comey became, once he kind of broke bad on Donald Trump, he became the poster boy for the left. Oh, there's this great public servant who's standing up and and honestly, I think the truth has always been as frequently as somewhere in between. Um, you may recall the thing that got Comey in the spotlight in the first place was that um, at the heat of last year's presidential campaign, he came out and he issued a, a statement clearing Hillary Clinton of of any criminal wrongdoing in the, the whole, you know, her handling of emails on the private server and, and that, that whole thing. You remember that whole story. The, the thing that struck people as bizarre and me as completely inappropriate is that 
I always learn that investigators and prosecutors speak through the, the charges. If you believe that you have evidence to present a criminal charge, then you, you take the evidence to the grand jury, you indict the person, you go from there. On the other hand, if you don't, you don't you don't talk about the, the case. You don't go into detail about why it is that you're doing this or doing that. And what, what really, I think, got Comey in trouble in the beginning is he comes out, he gives this lengthy recitation of what he believes the investigation has shown, and a lot of people who are listening, including a lot of former prosecutors, are hearing this and saying, oh, if this all happened, she's committed a crime, she should be indicted. But then he comes to the conclusion that, well, no prosecutor based on this would charge her. Well, that... I don't uh, that that just wasn't true. Some prosecutors would have. Now I'm not saying that I think she should have necessarily been charged, but it was a bizarre way to handle the entire situation and that got Comey in trouble with a lot of people who were Trump supporters or not Hillary supporters going, "What are you doing coming out and and saying this and going through these facts and then concluding, you know, no criminal charges." And so there's that. And then of course that gave the attorney general cover to drop the whole case. Well then, New evidence is arguably developed. Um, then Comey comes out immediately before the election and says, well, wait, wait, we've got some new stuff. You know, maybe this will change our opinion. And so that's why, you know, Comey, because he chose to, I, I think, violate protocol or at least at the very least use really bad judgment by getting in the middle of this in a political season in the first place, he put himself in, in crosshairs. Well, now there is a report. And again, I I don't know the validity of it, but it's being reported in Politico and The Hill and a number of a number of other places that that Comey had actually decided that he was not going to recommend criminal charges against Hillary Clinton months before he made the announcement and before the FBI had actually conducted several interviews. If this is true. If it's true, it's it's just mind-boggling. All right, here's the way Politico reports it. Um, GO, according to GOP senators, Comey drafted a statement clearing Clinton before her interview. Former FBI director, this is what Politico writes, James Comey began drafting a statement rejecting the idea of criminal charges against Democratic presidential killer, candidate Hillary Clinton over her private email account about two months or more before Clinton was interviewed in the FBI probe, according to a partial transcript of interviews released Thursday by two Republican senators. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley and Senator Lindsey Graham said they obtained the transcripts from the Office of the Special Counsel, a government watchdog agency that launched an investigation into Comey's actions and whether they violated a federal law against government employees engaging in political activity while on duty. In a letter sent Wednesday to Comey's successor, the new FBI director, Senator Grassley, Senators Grassley and Graham said Comey's move to start preparing the statement sometime in April or May reflected a premature conclusion that Clinton shouldn't be charged. Conclusion first, fact-gathering second, that's no way to run an investigation. The FBI should be held to a higher standard than that, especially in a matter of such great public interest and controversy. Um, again, I don't, I don't know whether this is is actually true or not. But if it's accurate, 
it's, again, another one of these just sort of mind-blowing situations. Now, as somebody who used to review criminal cases all the time and make decisions as to whether I thought there was going to be a prosecution that was warranted, I cannot think of a situation where I would have sat down and started drafting well, if it was an active investigation, now, a lot of times you have active investigations. In the back of your mind, you're thinking, I don't really think this one's going to go anywhere. I mean, that, that prosecutors have that happen all the time. You're looking at someone, you say, well, we really need this piece of evidence or that piece of evidence, or I, I, maybe we're just spinning our wheels here, and I think that's not going anywhere. I can't imagine, though, a situation, especially a high-profile situation like this, where if you're the person who's responsible for ultimately running the investigation, you would be sitting down and drafting memos, clearing clearing the person who is the subject of the investigation before the investigation, number one, was complete, and before, number two, the subject of the investigation had even been interviewed. If this is true, it is staggering incompetence and i guess there, there's no other way to say it it's just staggering incompetence um i don't know about james comey one way or the other like i said earlier i think the truth of his tenure is kind of somewhere in between but for whatever reasons he was presented with he he allowed himself to get drawn into all the political back and forth last year and he, he either wasn't clever enough or he either did it intentionally or he wasn't clever enough to figure out a way to stay out of this. And as a result, I mean, I think, and again, I don't care whether you love Donald Trump or hate Donald Trump. I don't think whether you're, whether you, whether you're glad that James Comey turned on him or whatever. I don't care about any of that. I care more about the FBI and the big picture. What's the Department of Justice going to look like five years from now, ten years from now, when all this is blown over? And the more and more you hear about this, the more and more I become convinced if this stuff like this is true, it demonstrates that James Comey just wasn't the right guy to run the FBI. Okay, coming up next, for all those people who lost their homes um, during the floods in Houston, should we be paying to help them rebuild? It's an interesting and provocative topic. Stick around. It's 1045. It's 1048, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Sheriff David Clark surprised many with yesterday's resignation. How will his legacy as the county's top cop be defined? I shared my thoughts earlier today, and you can check that out on the podcast page. But you can discuss during Scafidi and Billstat with the guys at 135 today. All right. Um, the, the devastation in Houston is just it's it's catastrophic there's no other word to describe it some of the estimates are that at the at when all is said and done that the dollar damage at result of hurricane harvey will be somewhere in the neighborhood of 160 billion dollars hopefully it's going to be less than that but it's, it's going to be of of standards of hurricane katrina a number of people are going to be presented with challenges and questions including For those who live in some of the most flood-prone areas, do they rebuild? Now, over the last week, we've been talking a little bit about the the, the flood insurance program. The way way it works is the federal government underwrites national flood insurance, and and they underwrite the costs of this. And people who take out the flood insurance 
don't really end up paying the whole, the true cost of the insurance because it's underwritten by the federal government. If people actually had to pay, let's assume that there's no government involvement and you just had the insurers that were deciding, okay, how much... You know, how much would an insurance policy on this particular house that's flooded three times in the last 10 years, what would that cost? It would be prohibitive. People wouldn't be allowed, wouldn't, wouldn't be able to pay it. So the federal government has this program where the taxpayers underwrite the costs of the flood insurance. The problem is when you have a catastrophic event like a Hurricane Katrina or a Hurricane Harvey, the damages, even with the limits that you have on federal flood insurance, the damages are, are so so great and the payouts are are so great that the federal government ends up having to shell out billions of dollars more to prop up the flood insurance and this has been an an ongoing debate and it's an interesting thing because it's a discussion that doesn't really cross it's to me it, it kind of it doesn't fall on political lines but the the issue is should we as taxpayers be underwriting Homes being built in areas, particularly the coastal areas, where homes really probably shouldn't be built. Because, I mean, here's the truth of it. If your house, you know, floods, if you're living in an area where every spring when it rains, um, your house floods, you probably shouldn't be living there. Or if you decide to live there, all right, that's at a certain point in time, you, you you take that whole risk. You know, if you decide you want to live there, understanding that you know three you know every spring your home is going to flood because you live on this river. The rains come in April and the riverbank overflows and boom, your house is flooded. Well, if you decide you want to do that, that's fine. But don't expect anybody else to underwrite or pay for the cost of your decision. So what people are looking at now is. As a, in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey, and again, the dollar loss is going to be catastrophic. Should we, should we simply say there are some coastal areas that have a great attraction? People want to live by the water. You want to live by the beach. All those type of things, but these areas are so flood prone that the likelihood that there is going to be damage is great. And at this point in time, we're going to stop subsidizing. We taxpayers are going to stop subsidizing your risky decision. If you decide you want to put up a quarter million dollar house, you know, by the beach, fine. But, you know, you're going to be the one that's going to have to be responsible for that. Or the other argument is that the government simply say, hey, look, there's areas of there's areas around the coasts, for example, this is happening too much. And we're just not going to allow building in some of these areas because this flooding is going to happen. I understand Hurricane Harvey was a a once in a thousand year type of thing, but flooding. And these types of things happen in some areas on a regular basis. More and more people are moving towards the co- to, to the coast. Should the rest of us underwrite their decisions to live there when you know that some of these areas are very flood prone? 414-799-1620. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. That this this might be harsh. I'm not talking right now about how we handle people who have been victims of Hurricane Harvey. But, you know, moving forward, 
I guess I think that if you're going to make a decision to live in one of these flood-prone areas, you want to live in an area where you know these storms roll through. You want to live in an area where the house floods three times in 10 years. Okay, fine. You go ahead and do that, but don't expect the rest of us to underwrite the repair costs for what I think is a risky decision. 414-799-1620. What do you think? We discuss next. It's 1054. It's 1057, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. A lot of people who's, who lost their homes in Hurricane Harvey are going to be faced with decisions. What do you do? Do you rebuild? Well, here's the reality. If people who lived in a lot of these, these flood-prone areas around the, the, the Texas coast, for example, if they had to pay what, re, what the true cost of, the, of insuring their houses would be, pe- people wouldn't be able to afford it. They, they'd be moving out of these areas. So the question becomes, you know, should the rest of us be underwriting the costs of people who make the choice to live in these areas that are going to flood constantly? And my answer is is no. Kevin in Milwaukee. Kevin, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, if you're going to if you're going to live in a floodplain uh, where it's possible flooding, you need to take precautions. You build your house up on stilts or something. But yeah, I don't want to have to pay for somebody else's stupidity. Well, or or just right, or I mean, look, I understand why people want to live on the coast. I understand why you want to be. Hey, it's it's sea level. This is great. I, I walk out and I, I'm right there by the Gulf of Mexico. But you know, like I say, your house floods three times in ten years. Oh, okay. At some point in time, that's that's your decision that you're making. It's not mine. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, so you, you, there are precautions to make. If you go down to Gulfport, Mississippi, you look at the houses. The houses are built twelve feet up or off the ground. And they're built in such a way that the uh, storm surge can come right. and, and blow that lower floor out and not damage the rest of the house. Right, right, e- exactly. And that I mean, thanks. Now that that might make that might make it prohibitive. You know, if you build something like that, it might make it prohibitive for a lot of people to buy and live there. Well, oh, okay, maybe that tells us that there's certain areas that you just that we we shouldn't be living in. And that, that, I guess that's my, my point. Moving forward, again, you have to face these, because, I mean, here's the fact of the matter. You've got people who've lost their homes. Your, your heart goes out to them. But now they're faced with a decision, okay, do you rebuild, knowing that the same thing, maybe not to this extent, but the same thing could happen, you know, in the immediate future, two or three years from now. And, you know, who, who picks up the cost for that? Right, we're going to continue this conversation for one more segment. If you're on the line, please sit on. Is it cruel and heartless to say, you know, maybe there are parts of this country where, you really the the risk of living is just too great, and if you choose to do it, you shouldn't accept expect the rest of us to bail you out. If you're on the line, hold on. It's ten fifty nine. This is Jeff Wagner. It's eleven oh nine. This is Jeff Wagner. Coming up in ten minutes before we can review, who is Ed Cunningham, and why does anybody care what he thinks? It's an interesting story. Right now, we're continuing our conversation. A lot of people who lost their homes in the Houston area, Corpus Christi area, are going to be faced with a decision about do do you rebuild in some of these areas that are highly prone to flooding? The to the extent they have flood insurance, it is paid for. It's underwritten by the rest of us, the taxpayers, and there's not enough money to cover these catastrophic losses. So it raises this question of. You know, should the taxpayers essentially be bailing out people who make the decisions to build and or live 
in these areas that are prone to being flooded. I mean, if you've been on TV, and this doesn't have to be Houston, if you live down in Kenosha or Galena, Illinois, and you've been on television more than twice sitting in a rowboat with all your possessions watching your house flood, all right, at some point in time, should maybe you just not be able, allowed to live there? 414-799-1620. Lisa in Elm Grove. Lisa, good morning. You're on 620 WTMJ. Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for taking my call. I'm not sure. a person that normally calls in, but this, um, it's so much more complicated than what Jeff makes it sound like. Okay, you're talking you to have, Jeff, so you're on the air. So go ahead. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, you have six to ten million people. You can't, they live there because of their job. And even if they were to move, it's not like you can go to some hilly area or find some higher ground. When the Houston and that whole coast is 20 to 30 feet above sea level, there's not much choice to relocate and find a place. I grew up in the Beaumont area, and my fam- my parents had flood insurance on their house my entire year growing up, and we didn't have claims. There's a lot of people that have flood insurance that never make a claim. It's not like a, mo- a lot of these houses are on the beach that got flooded. Yes, in Rockport, Victoria, some of those those towns are completely wiped out by the storm. This is, it's like, how do you tell businesses to relocate when all these industries are in Houston in a city that's at sea level? People don't have much of a choice of a, to go build somewhere else that it may not happen again. Houston has an amazing drainage system for the most part when it rains. They get thunderstorms in the afternoon on a mm-hmm. weekly basis that would flood us like crazy that they drain off. But when they get a whole year's worth of rain in a few days, it doesn't have anywhere to go. And people that never flood that probably have flood insurance are making claims this time. It's, what it's about what about the homes that have flooded, say, three times in the last 10 years? What about they, those? I mean, do, well, do, do you I mean, keep rebuilding they, those? What, what is the homeowner to do? They can't sell their house to someone else. Do I mean, and they're not getting reimbursed for the full amount to rebuild. They're paying a lot of money out of pocket. Okay. What about people? Okay, are we subsidizing California? All the people that sit on a fault line out on the West Coast, or their houses, you know, the areas burn all the time, or they they know they're susceptible to earthquakes. It's kind of like the same thing. I mean. But they could relocate, but they may not have a job if they move somewhere else to higher Well, well nobody's it's- arguing that you should necessarily close down Houston, but the, the particularly flood-prone, low-lying areas, and I, I would say this about Florida, too, and you know yeah. Louisiana. I mean, at, at some point in time, if you have repeated flooding, I mean, do we just keep doing the same, okay, rebuild, and then it's going to flood two years from now, and then rebuild? At some point in time, do we say maybe there's some areas that people shouldn't be living in? Well, I know what you're saying. It's like we did that here in Tulsa, in Wauwatosa. Yep. There were some houses that were took, taken down near the park yep. by the village. It's just, it's so, the enormous area to relocate these You can't move a whole city is kind of what I'm saying. So, oh, and like, for example, some of these areas don't always flood on a regular basis. But yeah, I know what you're saying. Like, every, if they flood two or three times. Right. I mean, the street I grew up on in the Beaumont area probably got water this time. And, I mean, as a kid, I think we had water once where the carpet got squishy. Right. You're going to replace your carpet, and you're going to stay there. But it's not, like, all the time, all the time. And that's the thing. And so, say, 
you know, like you target an area like Tosa that we did here, and you say, let's relocate these people, but it's such a massive amount of area that it's not like saying, let's take these 10 houses and have these people build somewhere else. It's well, right, and I, 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 no, I, I mean, thanks to colleagues. And I, look, I understand Houston is the fourth largest city in the in the country, and I, I understand. And I'm not arguing you you empty out Houston, just like um, New Orleans. You're you're always New Orleans, which is what at or below sea level. You're you're always, you know, when when you have these catastrophic type of events, you're always going to have that flooding. But there's all sorts of coastal areas and all sorts. And look, we we've had a huge building boom over the last couple last several decades because people want to live by the water i get it believe me i'm i'm raising my hand i i understand people want to live on the gulf coast of florida people want to live in the areas that are prone to hurricanes because it's got so much other attractiveness to it so i mean i i understand all that um and i'm not arguing that we should just uh, again nobody i'm not saying you clear out the gulf coast of florida because you have the occasional hurricane but if you have some of these low-lying areas that not only flood when you have the thousand-year flood, but also you know are are damaged on a regular basis because again they're low-lying areas, and and the, the example of whether it's Galena, Illinois, or Tosa is the same. I mean, it seems to me rebuilding if you have areas that this happens all the time, over and over and over again. Um, and then being surprised that, oh, oh, two years, okay, yeah, every April we, we get lots of rain. This is a particularly low-lying area. It's it's going to flood. Like I say, if you've been on TV more than two times in a rowboat in your front yard with all your possessions, maybe that tells you there's something about where you're living. And I, I mean, I understand it's it's difficult. And I'm not arguing that you do away with the entire national flood insurance program or anything like that. But the truth is now what we're doing is unsustainable. And part of it is because... Again, this isn't a political issue at all, whether it's climate change or whether just what we're going through now or whether it's people, more and more people building and living in areas that are more prone to this. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, you you have to recognize that there's just some areas that if you decide you want to take the risk, oh, that that's fine. Also, on top of that, there's all sorts of areas in Houston, for example, Texas, and without getting too deep in the weeds in this, my understanding is Texas has some of the most lax building codes when it comes to flood prevention and things like that, because there are things that you can do to make it less likely. Now, they're expensive, but you can, you know, when you build, you can make it less likely that um, you're going to have that, that flooding. But I, I guess I, I do think this is part of a national conversation that we have to have about, you know, how do we just keep rebuilding and rebuilding and rebuilding, you know, when you have the same areas that are hit over and over and over again? It is 1117. When we come back, before the weekend review, um, who is Ed Cunningham and why does anybody care? Stick around. It's 1117. It's 1119. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, BD, do you know who Ed Cunningham is? You do not. You're a sports fan, too, aren't you? All right. Ah, how quickly we go. Ed Cunningham is a guy who's been a college football analyst, a color analyst for ESPN or ABC for the last 20 years. Who, who knew? Me neither. Me neither. He, he walked away from his job earlier this week, and he said, 
I, I think football is too dangerous. I, and I think I have been partly responsible. I mean, every Saturday during the fall, I go do these college football games. I see these big hits. I see people that have these concussions. I can no longer in good conscience be part of it. I am walking away. That's who Ed Cunningham is. And my guess is most of you, just like me and BD, we didn't know who he was. So, But he says it's too dangerous. Now, that has spawned an interesting reaction. Matter of fact, I'm... I'm looking at a piece that was on Fox News today, on Fox, and you know people are reacting and they're saying, look, this, this war, the argument is, this war on football, this attack on football is unfounded. If you're concerned about concussions, the argument goes, you are just as likely, maybe even more likely, to sustain a concussion playing certain other sports like soccer, where... You've got people that are, for example, not wearing pads, not wearing helmets. They're jumping up. Um, they're banging into each other. You have a lot of collisions. But also, you sustain concussions from, for example, a hard ball repeatedly hitting your head. And so the argument this guy that I'm looking at the story is making is that, you know, concussions much more likely to, um, you know, have the rate of concussions is, is much greater in soccer, in college, women's soccer has a higher rate of concussions than men's football or soccer. Um, same thing is true in, in men's soccer compared to football. So 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We've only got a couple minutes. Um, Packers season is starting. Badgers play tonight. It's their first game. Um, people are going to be riveted to this. But at the same time, I know that there's a lot of you... Maybe you, you've got you've got the kid that's going into high school, um, and you got to decide, or, or maybe you've got the eighth grader or the seventh grader who's looking at playing not who's looking at playing tackle football in the Pop Warner leagues or whatever we have around here. I mean, is is football too dangerous? I mean, is the concern for concussions too great, or um, is it really no worse than something like soccer or things like that? Is this just a risk that people take? Ed Cunningham says he can no longer call football games because he thinks he's been con- a contributing factor to all these injuries. Is football too dangerous? And if football is too dangerous, is soccer too dangerous? Where do we draw the line? 414-799-1620. I'll tell you where I come down on this in just a minute. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1123. It's 1124, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. I don't want to be a hypocrite about this. I, I love watching football. Loved watching the Packers games. I'm going to watch the Badgers game tonight. I mean, I love watching college football. At the same time, in all honesty, if if this was my 10-year-old nephew or and, and they asked my opinion, or if I had a kid, I, would I forbid him from playing football? No. But would I probably be happier if they didn't? Um, yeah. Let's talk to Charlie in Cedarburg. Charlie, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. How are you? Very well, thank you. Okay, would you let, let your kid play football? Uh, no, to be short, um, I, I hope he doesn't. I love playing football. I love watching football just like you, but I don't want my son or daughter to play football. I, I, I just think it's very dangerous, and um, I prefer that they wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, what about things like soccer? I mean, people would say if you look at the numbers, the, the concussion rate from soccer is higher than it is in football because, again, people bang into each other or they're hitting a hard ball with their head. You know, the numbers don't always tell the real story, and maybe that's true, but you might get some mild concussions when you're headbutting a soccer ball. Right. But you can't tell me that it's not more dangerous 
when you got 250 pound batting rams trying to take your head off. Right, running at you as hard as they can on every play. No, th- thanks for the call. It, it, that's um, I mean, I've told this story before. I had a friend of a friends of mine, and they they had a, a kid, a great athlete, and he was on the freshman football team. He was the quarterback. He sustained a concussion, and as soon as that happened, mom said, "Look, you can." That's it. You know, you can play on the golf team. You know, you can, and I mean, I understand you can get injured everywhere else. I think this is, I think this is a big issue. I have to tell you, moving forward, not just with people making the decision whether the kids are going to play, but I, I, I think they have to figure out ways to to change the game, keeping the character of the game in. But and I don't know what the answer to that is. Mike in Greenfield. Mike, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Jeff, thanks for taking the call. Hi, Great program as usual. Thank you, sir. Um, there was a movie made, I think Will Smith started in it, about an action. This actually happened that he was against the NFL. Well, the NFL, you know, actually didn't ruin his career, but relocated him because he tried exposing them and the dangers. I have a sophomore uh, kid that's in high school playing football, and I can see why all these uh, professional players sign these big contracts because they're either one injury away from A, just getting injured, not, uh, B, right. Getting severely injured, right? right. Or, or C, getting killed. So, they, oh, and by the way, just to uh, expound on the soccer, they are developing headwear for soccer yeah. players right now. So, yeah, I think that's going to. I mean, thanks. I actually think that's going to be the future of soccer. And I mean, and, and I know for younger soccer players, they they don't allow you to head the ball. I mean, my nephew plays soccer. He's ten, and I I, I don't I, in the leagues they have you're not allowed to head the ball. I mean, you um, now. I don't know at what age group that changes or anything like that, but and obviously it does at some point in time because that's a big part of the game. But I wouldn't be surprised to see at some point in time soccer move to, again, wearing headgear for exactly that reason. Gary in Burlington. Gary, you're on 620 WTMJ. Yeah, Mike. Thanks, Jeff, for Hi. taking my call. My, sure. my grandson is a perfect example. He played rugby and football both. And two years ago playing rugby, he got hit in the head uh, it took the knee to the head and it knocked him out and he never told anybody. He's, he's got a full academic ride to Miami of Ohio. Okay. He could have went to Kentucky. He could have went to Alabama and, uh, but he played football last year, but, uh, he, he's done. He said that, that he said it, it scared him and, uh, he said he's not going to, he could probably walk on possibly down at Miami of Ohio, but, he said he's not going as much as he loved it. Uh, mm-hmm. He said you, you can't risk it. He said, uh, yeah. you know, he's 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 got a you know four old plus and uh, you he know, doesn't want to take the chance. You know, Gary, is, one of the things that's interesting is, and look, I I don't follow rugby, you know, but you know, it's I don't hear as much about concussions, and maybe it's just maybe they're out there, and I'm just not hearing it. I don't hear as much about concussions and something like rugby as you do in football and I, I I've always now, now now maybe per capita there are but I've kind of wondered whether or not see I think a lot of people in football they they use those helmets I mean the helmets I think it gives them a false sense of security and I think some people kind of use those helmets as weapons which contributes to some of the injuries right rugby gets a bad rap kind of like the pit bulls uh it's 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 a rough sport but it's it's not this uh, coming forty yards again, you know, at each other and and getting hit. It's you're constantly moving, and right. uh, granted, there's no pads, but still, you it it's not near as rough, and and your head doesn't hit the ground like football. I mean, it's mm-hmm. yeah, football with the helmets until they do something, and I don't know what they can do. Uh, right. It's it's a tough it's a tough decision. 
thanks for calling. No, I mean, this is, and I mean, I just bring this up. Like I say, if you hadn't heard, you probably never heard of who this Ed Cunningham is. I hadn't uh, probably heard him call games. But an ESPN color analyst in football for 20 years, he walked away saying he thinks college football is too dangerous. I don't think college football is going to end today or tomorrow. And I admit, I'm, I'm going to be watching the Badgers game tonight. I, I acknowledge it. I'm going to be watching the Packers game a week from Sunday. Um, I, I love football. And like everybody else, you love the big hits. But you got to figure out how do you balance it. You know, if 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 the if the NFL or college football becomes like flag football, well, people are going to lose interest in it. But at the same time, if everybody's getting injured, that's going to change the dynamic as well. It's eleven thirty-six. Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ. We have reached that point in the week where it is the week in review, and I. You know, I forgot to do this up front last week. We, in addition to doing this on the radio, we also live stream this so you can see what the studio looks like. You can see the thorn between the two roses. That thorn would be me. Um, Facebook.com backslash um, 620WTMJ. It is the Week in Review. We are joined, as always, by Susie Falk from Falk Group PR. Hello. Good morning. And Tracy Johnson from the Commercial Association of Realtors. Hello. Greetings. All right. A lot of stuff. And as a matter of fact, this this actually might be a um might be a Donald Trump free zone for the first time <laughs> in a in a long while on the program. Let's start off. The the big local news, certainly of the last twenty four hours, is Sheriff David Clark, um, appointed to office in two thousand two re-elected as a Democrat three separate times, announcing yesterday that he was resigning. He turns in his letter of resignation. What's going to be the legacy of David Clark, Susie Falk? Uh, can't we talk about Donald Trump? He's like, <laughs> not quite as uh, controversial. <laughs> uh, you, here's where I think we're how we're going to remember David Clark, that he, was, he started out, I believe, a very good uh, public servant. And I think the last maybe 10 years, eight years, it seems like he's gotten away from that, and it's more about David Clark now than about um, the county. And, you know, if you look at the reasons, or what, what does mean role is, it's to keep peace and uh, quiet and calm in the community. And I think he's done just about everything but that. You know, I think he's made a lot of enemies. He's insulted all kinds of uh, minority populations. Um, he's, you know, hustling. Like how? Like how? I mean. uh, well, okay. Well, calling some black people uneducated and ill-informed, and and that's the problem with them. They're lazy. Okay, and then also maybe uh, creating some tension in the Muslim community by by stricter patrolling. I just don't know that he's got the the public interest. I w- I would actually compare him much to Donald Trump in mm-hmm. that he's all about David Clark and and not about. Um, he doesn't have a public servant's heart. Let's put it that way. Tracy Johnson. I, I, I think people will will look at his time in service and you know if we don't have somebody who's strong and someone who questions authority and questions the status quo we're 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 going to miss that because i think there were many times and many instances where sheriff clark was was trying to hold people to account and hold communities politicians business leaders accountable because Let's face it, Milwaukee is a troubled community when it comes to crime, and we need people who are going to be questioning what is being done. We need people who are going to be standing up for security in the police force, and I and I think does that I, I include think, the jail because I don't think he's doing a very good job. Well, see, in the jail. I, I actually going back to one of the ways you started, Susie. I, I've been arguing. I think I think the legacy of David Clark is going to be overall positive, but I, I think it's mixed. I 
I've seen the evolution of David Clark. I mean, I was saying, I mean, I remember when he first got the appointment, I had, I had breakfast with him right down the street, and I thought, okay, here is this, you know, African-American law, person with lots of law enforcement experience who is willing to challenge political correctness and political orthodoxy and shake up the system like you were talking about, Tracy, and I think... You know, like him or hate him, I think he did that. I think he said a lot of stuff that needed to be said. He talked about accountability. I think what happened is somewhere along the line, whether it's two years ago or four years ago, I think he got bored with the job. I, I, I think, and I, and I, just, I think he got sick of having to deal with the clown car act that is the county board, and got sick of dealing with Chris Abley, and just. I think he got tired, and then he wanted this national profile. And I think the the last couple of years, I, I do think he's taken his eye off the ball locally because he's cultivated this national figure. National well, person. I mean, he's been really swept up in it, and yet sure. you can either make the choice to say, "Okay, I'm going to," I see an opportunity here to to continue sticking up for my profession and for you know the, for security and for uh, you know police force or you can say you know i'm just gonna let it go and i'm gonna try to fight these little battles on the ground that i'm never going to win he did get caught up at times in the politicization of the role i think and that might be one of the criticisms but you know you talked about the jails and you talked about other things i mean there are a lot of problems in milwaukee county and i think anybody in these positions would would struggle uh to to control a lot of the things that are happening so i think he did the best that he could and i actually think that he uh, did a lot of good for our community and especially the way that he questioned authority and the status quo i sure hope that governor walker puts somebody as strong-hearted as as sheriff clark in that role i I think you need to be collaborative and i don't think you need to be so adversarial which is his mo and you know it's almost like he is picking fights he did there's no question about he picked fights you know whether or not you like chris abley let's why can't you just Check it at the door. Or, mm-hmm. You know, put your happy big boy pants on, smile, and say, "Let's just try oh, to make okay, this well, a better that, place." Okay, well, that's a two-way street. You're talking about Abley, who put a quarter million dollars of his own money into trying to defeat David Clark. And nearly so, did. Why well, nearly? Okay, so I mean, he gets Roger, to do it. Okay, just, Roger Federer. Okay, and I know this just, sounds crazy. Then bring up this name, Roger Federer. Yeah, he actually looks at his opponents as opponents and not enemies. And he is so oh. high, read, read Sports Illustrated. He's so highly regarded in the sports community because he actually respects his opponents. Sure. He sees them as being adversarial, but he doesn't hate them as enemies. And that's the problem with Donald Trump, and that's the problem with Sheriff Clark. And Chris Abley? Well, I wonder, but but here's the thing. <laughs> yeah. and, and oh, I saw that look. Well, I mean, I, and I, I struggle because Abley would spent start. Two, he spent $250,000. Did you see his like statement on the way out? No, well, I mean, I'm just saying there's two to tango here. That's but, all. I mean, and, and I support Chris Abley, and I support Sheriff Clark, and I know, you know, they, they where they combined on this issue of, of the being the sheriff, Obviously, there were fireworks, but I, I do believe that if they put somebody else in that position who can collaborate with the county exec a little better, I think that'll put us in a much better position. Are you hearing names thrown around? I, I, a little uh, bit. Uh, okay, and? I, I, sure, no, sure. No. <laughs> um, oh, I mean, I, I have no problem. I mean, I, yeah. I, I tell you, I think one of the leaders in the clubhouse is Kevin Carr, who I've um, known for decades. Oh. Kevin was the uh, he was one of the top aides to Clark, but before he was with the sheriff's department for years and years. He was the former U.S. marshal. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe he's still a current U.S. marshal. I don't know if they booted him out yet or not. But he's the Obama appointee. But yeah, we used to chase drug dealers together back okay. hmm. back in the day. So I mean, I think candidly, and he says he wants to run for the office. I mean, candidly, I think. There's a couple of people out there, but if Scott Walker were to choose Kevin Carr, he could go further and do worse. Well, and there are a lot of people mm-hmm. that were already up for election that I think could do a really good job. And who, who's in that position now, the second in command? Right. There's a lot of, I think, good 
candidates that sure. might make life. I, yeah, I'd like to see easier. somebody that has some experience in the yeah. office, whether it's somebody that's yeah. either there now. And, and I don't think Walker is going to try to play kingmaker with this spot. I think he, I mean, it, let's face it, whoever is going to get appointed is going to have to run as a Democrat if they want to be reelected. Okay, one more question before we leave the subject of David Clark. Ladies, where's Clark's next step? Where does he go, Susie? <laughs> I, uh, I think he's going to do the national TV circuit. I, I don't think he's going to end up in the Trump campaign. I think there was a little bit too much embarrassment, what, what happened in the spring. I think he's going to do some Now, the Washington Post and the New York Times says he's he's in line for some mm. a point, a position in the Trump administration that doesn't involve a Senate confirmation because he can't get that. But you don't think that's think the way he's, he's going? I think he's going to do media. What if he was like a special advisor to the to President Trump, well, kind of like Kellyanne Conway. About. Yeah, that's what I think they're talking yeah, about. Because he has such a, a platform. He's not an administration guy. Mm. I mean, he's, he doesn't no, like the that, authority. That he doesn't Homeland like the Security rules. thing that they were floating his name for, he would have been awful in that. Mm. That was a bureaucratic job. He That was not... I don't think that's where his strengths and he's necessarily 60 were. Degre- 61 years old. I mean, he's he, he retired from the, the sheriff's office, and he... he he gets so, to do what so, he wants now. Too abrupt, though. I mean, do you think how he, I didn't hear if you talked no. about it earlier today? I just no, I mean, he's thought, quit. I mean, people well, quit all the time. I'm going to be done yeah. at 11:59. You know, yeah, people I, mean, I could quit like that. It was that. September 1st. I mean, it was a nice cutoff. You know, <laughs> oh, okay, right so you you fall. think he goes, Tracy? You think he goes to the Trump administration in some capacity? Yes. Um, it, well, it's either going to be that or it is going to be like some conservative think tank or some, mm-hmm. you know, one of these private groups that's supporting Trump and gives him his. I think he'd be happier actually with that so he can make the rounds. Of yeah. The TV shows well, and, and leverage like leverage what he's already got, which is a platform. I mean, he's arguably the most well-known sheriff in the, <laughs> yeah, now, in the yeah, country. Now, now that Joe Arpaio is, is, <laughs> right. is, is gone uh-huh. in, in Arizona. Um, it, I will say this. With, with David Clark gone, from my perspective, it's a little less interesting because whoever comes to replace him, <laughs> mm-hmm. I guarantee you, isn't going to be isn't going to give me the food for conversation that we've had over the last fifteen years. If Mitt Romney was president, we'd be bored. <laughs> <laughs> All right, when we come back, a um, lot of stuff on the agenda. We continue the conversation. Stick around. It's the Week in Review. I'm Jeff Wagner, joined by Tracy Johnson and Susie Falk. We live stream this. We're on Facebook Live. You can see what we all look like. Just go to Facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ. You can also now follow me on Twitter. How about that? Jeff Wagner, 620. It's uh, 1145. It's 1149. This is the Week in Review. Jeff Wagner, Susie Falk, Tracy Johnson. Um, All right. Houston. I mean, obviously, that's been the dominant story, ladies, for the entire week. Hurricane Harvey, it was predicted. Uh, No evacuation orders were issued. Did local authorities drop the ball? Should they have ordered the evacuation of the city? Tracy. I don't think so. No. I mean, it's funny. when When you think about it, they were talking not only that the distance between um, Houston and the Gulf, where the where the hurricane originally hit, was somewhere between 150 miles or something like that. There's no way they could have predicted that. Now, layer on top of that, that evacuations are not like just saying, "Okay, everybody, we're 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 going out." This mm-hmm. is a very, yeah. very, very highly coordinated effort that communities, you know, along the yeah. Gulf Coast will will take part in. You've got eight million people or seven and a half million people trying to get them all out of the city yeah. is nuts. Well, and I, looking back in two thousand five, they tried it. One hundred fifty people died trying to get out of the city. Rita, I think it was. during Rita. Well, would yeah. you be opposed to evacuation orders in general then? 
No, I wouldn't. But in, in a city like Houston, um, you know, it, it's obviously they, that they didn't have, they don't have necessarily a plan in place because when you're trying to move that many people, you have two choices, right? You say, we're either going to hunker down and we're going to focus on being safe where we are or we're going to get the heck out of here. And the officials determined that they would be better off staying where they were. Now, did they know that this storm was going to last as long as it did? Probably not. But because it was a slow moving storm and the flood rivers, the floodwaters were raising rising slowly, they had more time to Mm. kind of figure that out. So it, it was interesting, though, that the governor had said, stay put. To everyone, or, I'm sorry. The governor the said, option. "Get out." Governor yeah, said, "Get out." The mayor said, "Stay focused." Right. Stay so, right. so there was that conflict, and I think that was yeah, that was. Would you have gotten out? Um, I would have. I would have evaluated what my chances of yeah. getting out were. Um, if you could have gotten out, would you have got out? Probably not. I don't okay. think anybody I, thought I'm, it was going to be that bad. No, yeah, no but I, I, I would have stayed. Look, I, 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 I would have stayed. I, I beat up on, on meteorologists all the time, but I mean, I was watching these forecasts. I mean, they were saying several day no. rain event. I, I mean, I think they pretty much caught maybe maybe not. I was seeing thirty inches, maybe not fifty yeah. inches of rain, but a lot. What, well, did they blow? Did they, did they blow it? I don't think so. I think I don't think I would have encouraged an emergency evacuation just because what six point five million people? Where do they all go? I think you're just like Rita. You're going to have some other problems. But I do think we do learn lessons from things like this, and I also think they need to consider. You know, what do we do the next time? And I, you know, I mean, there there are very few regulations in that area, and 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 I think that that has encouraged. You know, let's get rid of any kind of drainage or wetlands. I know they installed the bayous, but obviously they're not working. Well, and this is not the first flood. This is, I think, what fourth flood in, in well, five years. Well, that is years. the bigger picture. I think they're going to have to. I mean, the national flood insurance program is broke. I mean, it, yeah. with all, mm-hmm. with, I mean, billions and billions and billions of dollars in the hole even before yeah. this. And so the question is going to be, well, how many times can you allow people yeah. to rebuild in some of these areas and, and, that where it floods? Not not just the once yeah. in a thousand years, but every three but years you're in the rowboat. There, there there are things called environmental regulations, and as we're looking at Foxconn, and I know we're not prone to hurricanes up here, but there are reasons why there are environmental regulations. And when you allow kind of haphazard building and development and you're putting, you know, flat roofs and and no drainage, no wetlands, no grass to absorb the water, you have problems like this. Did you notice that, Tracy? She got the Foxconn dig in there. Did I you, you like no, 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 that. I'm pro Foxconn. Yeah, I'm pro Foxconn. I'm totally pro Foxconn. <laughs> Anything about but, Trump in there? But I, I, I'll oh, okay. get to All right. it. We still have five minutes <laughs> left. No, okay, but, but just, just really quickly. Um, on Monday, which is Labor Day, there's going to be other big rallies, including in Milwaukee, or at least rallies in Milwaukee. Fast food workers walking off the job for $15 an hour minimum wage. Good idea. Bad idea, Susie Falk. Fifteen bucks an hour minimum wage. Uh, I think it should be something we shoot for. I don't think it can happen right in, right now. I think it's it would be it would be too hard on the fragile economy. And I do think that you know we sh- we need to consider the fifteen dollar an hour wage. I don't think you can do it overnight. Um, Tony Tony Evers has sort of a thoughtful stance on that. And oh, so, we just got the Scott Walker dig yeah, in there. Tracy Johnson. No, absolutely not. I, when you put uh, when you mandate. Fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. You're basically saying, okay, businesses, um, you know, automate. You're going to automate, and we're going to, mm-hmm. you know, all these. Some people are going to make more money, but a lot of people are not going to have They're jobs. Have and you see that back. happening in Seattle. Right. Seattle is a perfect case study. I, I, I have a friend who owns 
lots and lots of fast food restaurants. And he says it's not just the raising the minimum wage. What about the worker that started at nine bucks an hour now is making twelve bucks an hour? You're not you can't just raise them to fifteen. You got to raise them to twenty. He says it would just be devastating. Okay, a lot you of these restaurants. Toward a higher minimum wage too. Well, that was, look uh, at uh, Minnesota I, and Michigan. Right, but I, I was talking about fifteen. That's yeah, the right, thing. They so want fifteen. How about thirteen fifty? I mean, well, when I say you know we don't have to get to fifteen tomorrow. I think you, you make can, it thirteen fifty. A lot stop. of people are going to lose. All of a sudden, fifteen dollars is like the uh, new low. Got to take it. Got to take a break or else we're out of time for our Right Stuff Awards. They're coming up. It's 1154. This is the Week in Review. We're live streaming on Facebook as well. Stick it out. Stick around. It's 1157. Jeff Wagner. I forgot. Tracy Johnson is filling in for Steve Scafidi. So if I run late, what the heck? I'm just taking time out of yours. It's the Week in Review. Um, Susie Falk, Tracy Johnson, um, your Right Stuff Awards. Ms. Falk. Yeah, those who have given generously to help the hurricane victims, including J.J. Watt's foundation and J.J. Watt himself, hands on. And, and Coles. Coles and Miller Coors. Corporations are stepping up. Coles is giving a million dollars to Red Cross and a million dollars to help employees who have been hurt by the storm. So. Tracy Johnson. My Right Stuff Award goes to uh, DNR Secretary Kathy Stepp, who has just taken a job with uh, the Trump administration and the EPA. Um, she has been a true reformer of that uh, agency in trying to make it a more business-friendly uh, group um, versus a bureaucratic organization. So I hats agree. off to her. Her tenure, in some people's minds' eyes, was, was controversial. I agree with you, though. I think she's done a great job. And I want to just bootstrap my Right Stuff Award winners on what Susie was talking about to me it would be all the first responders and the volunteers all the people giving their time people traveling from all over the country to try to help the victims of hurricane harvey okay we are out of time it's graffiti and bill stat but actually it's bill stat and tracy johnson so stick around